Welcome to the Gaining Health Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Burridge, and I have been specializing in the medical care of people with obesity and obesity-related complications for over a decade. And this podcast is about how we can revolutionize healthcare and the health and well-being of our patients by providing compassionate, patient-centered, and evidence-based obesity care. At Gaining Health, we support clinicians interested in obesity medicine in numerous ways. We keep clinicians up to date with the latest science and guidelines through this podcast, and we also offer a membership to join the Gaining Health community to clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program or practice. And as a member, you'll enjoy numerous benefits, including access to our recorded masterclasses, a community chat forum that allows you to ask questions and share resources with fellow members, regular live virtual group coaching sessions, access to exclusive digital resources, and much more. We also offer resources such as the popular book, Developing an Obesity Management Program, The Clinician's Roadmap, editable forms and templates, and patient education materials through the Gaining Health Shop, so you don't have to recreate the wheel when designing your program. Thank you for joining us, and let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. Today, I'm excited to discuss this new clinical practice statement that was released by the um, Obesity Medicine Association in the Obesity Pillars Journal. So this one is on special considerations for the adolescent patient with obesity and Obesity Medicine Association Clinical Practice Statement 2024. So again, this can be found in the Obesity Pillars Journal, and it will also be published in Volume 9 of the Obesity Pillars Journal in March 2024. And the authors on this paper, there are numerous authors, including some of the utmost leaders in pediatric obesity management, including Suzanne Kuda, Marissa Sansani, Jennifer Paisley, Nancy Brown, and several other really amazing, fantastic leaders in the space of pediatric and adolescent obesity care. So I'm really excited to jump into this. So this CPS is designed to provide a roadmap Uh, to the improvement of the health of adolescents with obesity, and especially those with metabolic, physiological, and psychological complications. It's going to address the treatment recommendations to help providers with clinical decision-making when they are taking care of this population. So in this CPS, the authors recognize the cumulative physical and emotional toll that the disease of obesity can have on adolescents with obesity, And they also recognize some of the challenges in this population, right? So, you know, during this phase of life, they're becoming increasingly more independent, but they're still minors and they're also still usually dependent on family support for food and security and an emotional support. So it's a very, you know, kind of unique population and a very special period of time uh, for these kiddos. So it's, it's really critical that clinicians learn how to address obesity in this population, especially since adolescent obesity rates have tripled, tripled in the past 30 years, with now over 20% of U.S. adolescents being affected by obesity. 
And the data from the National Center for Health Statistics reported that between 1976 and 1980, about five and a half percent of children aged two to 19 met the criteria for obesity and about 1.3% met the criteria for severe obesity. And then if you compare that to data from 2018, they found a significant increase in obesity with 19.3% obesity rates and 6.1% severe obesity rates for U.S. children. And unfortunately, those numbers have really only gotten worse with the COVID pandemic. Um, And so, you know, that that period of time, that pandemic really put a particular strain, especially on our youth with the effects on, on school and extracurricular activities and an increase in, um, you know, in, in television and screen time. So, you know, unfortunately, things have only gotten worse in this population. And also, it's important to note that unlike children at younger ages, uh, in whom the rate of remission to normal weight actually exceeds the rate of progression to obesity, those whose obesity persists into adolescence actually do have a higher risk of obesity persisting into adulthood. So while with younger children, they may still kind of grow out of their obesity, uh, if it's persisted into adolescence, there's a smaller chance that they'll just grow out of it and a much higher likelihood that they will continue to have obesity and that that obesity will continue to progress in adulthood. And, and additionally, we know that these kiddos are at, at a much higher risk for several other medical conditions associated with weight, including metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, you know, diabetes, and the list kind of goes on. And, you know, this, this next statistic that they stated kind of shocked me. They said that one in three adolescents has prediabetes. That's crazy. One in three adolescents has prediabetes. And the rate amongst 12 to 19-year-olds has more than doubled between 1999 and 2000, at which point it was around 11.6% compared to 2015 to 2018, where the rates of prediabetes are around 28.2%. So again, you know, almost a third of our adolescents having prediabetes. And we know that pediatric patients who develop type 2 diabetes have at least a 50% chance that the disease will progress despite treatment. And of course, there, you know, there are those other medical conditions that we need to assess that worsen with obesity, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, obstructive sleep apnea, GERD, cholelithiasis, PCOS, and orthopedic conditions, especially Blount's disease and slipped capital femoral epiphysis. So we really need to assess for these conditions as well, especially in our adolescent patients with obesity. And so we've had some big progressions uh, in terms of obesity management in the adolescent and pediatric population, with last year marking the first time that the American Academy of Pediatrics Uh, published its comprehensive guidance recommending beginning obesity treatment upon diagnosis with really showing no benefit to this watchful waiting, right, when it comes to their weight, along with concurrent therapy, of course, of obesity-related complications. And 
If you want to go back to the AAP's clinical guidelines for pediatric obesity management, I would recommend you go back and listen to episode 18 from season one of the Gaining Health podcast, which was released February 1st, 2023. So I went into detail about the guidelines in that episode. But comprehensive treatment of adolescent and pediatric obesity includes motivational interviewing and intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment, at least 26 hours of face-to-face family-based multi-component treatment over a three to 12-month period of time, with advanced obesity treatment, including the use of anti-obesity medications in children over eight years old and pediatric metabolic and bariatric surgery per the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery guidelines um, added as indicated. So in terms of pharmacotherapy, prior to 2020, Orlistat was the only FDA-approved medication for pediatric patients greater than 12 years of age. But it wasn't used very much in clinical practice due primarily to the abdominal side effects and, you know, the side effect of those greasy, malodorous stools and um, rectal leakage, which when you're an adolescent, I think you're already dealing with enough, right? That's not something else you want to be dealing with, especially at that age. However, since 2020, additional medications are now FDA approved for children aged 12 to 17 years of age for chronic obesity management. And this includes now, we have um, daily GLP-1, so loraglutide or Saxenda, and then also weekly GLP-1, semaglutide or Wegovy. Those are both approved at ages 12 and up. And then also we have the combination of fentermine topiramate with the brand name of Qsimia, also approved for age 12 and up. And now we also have a melanocortin 4R receptor or the MC4R receptor agonist set melanotide, which is FDA approved for patients uh, greater than or equal to six years of age with obesity from a rare genetic condition such as POMC deficiency, PCSK1 deficiency, Bardet-Beetle syndrome, and leptin receptor deficiency. So that's pretty specific for those those monogenetic forms of obesity. But if you do have a diagnosis of that, we do have a treatment for that now for children ages six and up. And metabolic and bariatric surgery is also becoming increasingly available to youth with severe obesity, meeting eligibility criteria. Since we now have more robust outcome data Uh, on metabolic and bariatric surgery in adolescents uh, with long-term follow-up studies showing significant weight reduction and also resolution of existing complications like type 2 diabetes. So in this clinical practice statement, the authors address several populations of adolescents with obesity specifically. So they address children and adolescents with special health care needs which are defined to broadly include those who have, you know, in addition to their obesity, also have an underlying diagnosis that can lead to uh, intellectual disability, changes in mobility, or changes in metabolism. So these conditions include specific diagnosis of the autism spectrum disorders, uh, genetic syndromes such as Down syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, 
uh, beetle Bartle syndrome, um, and, and others. So children with these special health care needs have an increased risk of an elevated set point, an elevated weight set point, and therefore also, you know, increased risk for having uh, an elevated BMI percentile. So a systematic review and meta-analysis by Mayano et al. in 2016 found that adolescents with intellectual disabilities uh, found to be respectively 1.54 and 1.8 times more at risk of overweight and obesity than typically developing adolescents. And so especially in this population, it's really important to monitor the trajectory of the BMI percentile in this population. And when managing patients with special healthcare needs and obesity, the authors note that sensitivity to timing and current priorities of the weight management intervention is very important because these adolescents often have care needs that are, you know, that are more problematic. They have more behavioral dysregulation. And often those things are the primary initial focus. And so during weight management treatment, you know, when the adolescent experiences increasingly difficult behaviors or challenges, you know, these behaviors and challenges really often need to be addressed first before intensifying the interventions for weight management. Um, and then when weight management is the priority, the clinicians should assess what area within the weight management or behavior change is going to be most beneficial for each individual patient. Um, and we know that some of the multiple causes of weight gain in this population may include things like picky eating, uh, compulsive behaviors, restricted eating, oftentimes due to texture of certain foods. Uh, they may have dysregulated eating patterns or lack of access to adaptive physical activity. They may also struggle with decreased metabolism and also iatrogenic weight gain, especially from antipsychotic medications. So it's really important to keep all of those things in mind when treating this population. And so the authors state that a multidisciplinary team, including a healthcare provider with experience working with special needs patients, a psychologist, a dietitian, and a social worker, and or an occupational and physical therapist um, is needed for coordinating that care around weight management for patients and families with special health care needs. And within the weight management team and support staff, the authors recommend care conferences and coordinated weight management visits with the whole team to allow for joint problem solving with parents uh, and in the moment of developing that comprehensive care plan. So again, making sure that they are receiving consistent guidance from everybody on the team and really working together as a team to support these patients and their families. And because these adolescents typically have numerous other medical appointments, they often might respond well uh, with less frequent follow-ups. Um, that way they can kind of balance their weight management visits with many of the other medical appointments they may have. And the authors also recommend that telehealth visits can be extremely helpful 
to allow for either brief participation of the adolescent who can kind of come and go and leave the conversation as needed. And that also allows the parent to focus with the provider on, you know, education and recommendations. And so it can be less disruptive for the family as well. The authors also note that the consideration of autonomy is very important as well and really recommend partnering with the adolescent to obtain their buy-in to the treatment regimen. Of course, accounting for their developmental level as well, but as much as possible, um, you know, really using that shared decision-making. And they also note that, you know, all adolescents go through these phases of development where they're resisting previous limits, they're desiring more independence, and the same is true for this population. And so just kind of preparing families and supporting them with this expansion of these healthy boundaries uh, that can assist in successfully managing kind of these changing needs of these kiddos at this age. And then the authors also give some really great guidance on adolescents who might be picky eaters, for example. So uh, they give some suggestions like, you know, working on alternating foods, not repeating a food for 48 hours uh, if it's a food that they don't like or it's a new food, and limiting portion sizes of, you know, new foods uh, to help with that transition. The authors also address stress and sleep metabolic and bariatric surgery in this population, and also pharmacologic therapy. So they note that reviewing the patient's medication list for weight-promoting medications is really important in this population, as it is, of course, with all patients. But, you know, two of the common weight-promoting medications in adolescents with special health care needs include those atypical antipsychotics uh, for behavioral or mental health management, and also steroids for the treatment of uncontrolled asthma or other conditions. So they do note that metformin and topiramate are beneficial in mitigating a medication's weight-promoting effects and can be definitely used in the setting of obesity management. And additionally, some of these weight-mitigating medications can also lead to decreased hunger and cravings and improve the adolescent's ability to implement limits around portions and also uh, in-between meal snacking. Then they go on to say that for adolescents with special health care needs and significant increases in hunger or a lack of satiety, uh, which is common, um, especially with some of these developmental disorders, choosing an anti-obesity medication that targets these phenotypes uh, can be very helpful. And so some of the common pharmacologic choices include phentermine, topiramate, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and naltrexone. And they also note that food cravings and food-seeking behaviors uh, can be targeted with topiramate and or naltrexone. And that GLP-1 receptor agonists address multiple targets that are considered in patients with a dysregulated uh, appetite of, of multiple different phenotypes. And that these GLP-1 receptor agonists tend to really decrease that food noise uh, for a lot of patients, leading to improved implementation of other behavioral changes. And the authors also note that gradual, small gradual changes over time are key, and they list a table of strategies for successful implementation of an obesity care plan for the adolescent with obesity and special health care needs, 
so take a look at that table for some of their strategies that they recommend. All right. Another population of adolescents that are discussed in this clinical practice statements are those adolescents who have undergone metabolic and bariatric surgery. So here the authors provide some of the outcome data, and they also provide guidance for the management of this population, including the addition of pharmacotherapy as indicated. So they show some of that outcome data uh, in a nice table form. So if you're interested in looking at that, you can go ahead and look at that table in the paper, which I will link, of course, in the show notes. So next, the authors review the management of adolescents with obesity and PCOS. So PCOS, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, affects 6 to 18, so quite a range there, 6 to 18% of adolescent females. It's important to note that not all females with PCOS have obesity, and not all females with obesity have PCOS, However, a high prevalence of obesity does exist in those with PCOS, and those with obesity have a higher risk of PCOS than those females um, of normal healthy weight. So PCOS is, it's a heterogeneous disorder uh, that's heralded by a state of hyperandrogenism and insulin resistance. And insulin promotes ovarian and adrenal androgen secretion reduces sex hormone binding globulin secretion, and increases LH release or luteinizing hormone release. And in turn, those androgens then promote visceral obesity, reduce glucose uptake in the adipose tissue, and promote inflammation, which then further increases insulin resistance. So it's this cycle of insulin resistance and hyperandrogenism that play a large role in the development of PCOS. So the authors note that the criteria for adolescents for the diagnosis of PCOS is a little different from adults. And the criteria include abnormal menstruation for age or post-menarche age, as well as biochemical or clinical evidence of hyperandrogenism. So the diagnosis of PCOS cannot be made in females who are less than one year post-menarche because irregular cycles are expected during this time. However, between one to three years post-menarche, irregular cycles are defined as less than 21 or greater than 45 days. And for girls, for females over three years post-menarche, Irregular cycles are defined as less than 21 days or greater than 35 days or fewer than eight cycles per year. So it's a little different than in adults. Clinical evidence of hyperandrogenism includes severe acne as well as hirsutism. And biochemical hyperandrogenism is evidenced by elevated levels of free testosterone or bioavailable testosterone, or a high free androgen index. And polycystic ovaries on ultrasound are not part of the diagnostic criteria in adolescence because of the common finding uh, of polycystic ovaries in normally menstruating uh, adolescent females. So that is not part of the diagnostic criteria in adolescence. 
So history and physical exam are important to determine which other laboratory testing may be necessary, uh, which may include other labs uh, as listed in the CPS uh, in this uh, CPS statement, in addition to free testosterone and bioavailable testosterone levels. And while insulin resistance is associated with PCOS, insulin levels are actually not part of the workup officially. So, and treatment of adolescent PCOS in the setting of obesity focuses on both reducing insulin resistance and improving androgen levels and restoring menstrual function and fertility. So this can be accomplished through decreasing stored adiposity measured by weight loss, um, or also I suppose it could be measured by other ways like body composition analysis, and by pharmacotherapy use. And treatment should be directed at symptom improvement as well as disease remission and prevention of further comorbidities. So the authors discussed uh, nutritional and physical activity approaches and recommendations, and they noted that there's not a lot of evidence to support you know, one type of nutrition plan or one type of exercise plan um, for the treatment of PCOS, uh, but that all of them that kind of lead to weight reduction um, in terms of nutrition plans will be helpful uh, in the treatment of PCOS. Uh, and in terms of physical activity, um, there's not one type of physical activity, but in general, the recommendation is at least three days or more of 60 minutes of physical activity um, or more, uh, but not any specific type of physical activity has been shown to be more helpful than other. And then adjunctive weight loss options such as uh, anti-obesity medications or metabolic and bariatric surgery uh, should be considered to optimize weight reduction uh, and improve insulin resistance in patients with obesity where it is indicated. So GLP-1 agonists have been studied in women with obesity and PCOS and have been found to reduce body weight and improve hyperandrogenism and ovulatory function. And other medications that are currently FDA approved to treat childhood and adolescent obesity, such as the combination of fentramine to pyramate or oralostat, have not been studied much uh, with respect to the improvement in PCOS morphology. But there was a study by Elkind Hirsch et al. in 2021, and they studied the impact of fentramine topiramate in combination, uh, or, or the fentramine topiramate combination and SGLT2 inhibitors with or without a GLP-1 agonist uh, on weight markers and markers of PCOS in women with obesity. And the results suggested that all of the options improved BMI and androgen levels, with a combination of GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors leading to the greatest improvement in insulin resistance. And metabolic and bariatric surgery as a treatment for PCOS has not been studied in adolescents. However, numerous studies in adults indicate that metabolic and bariatric surgery leads to weight loss as well as improvement in ovarian function, insulin resistance, menstrual regulation, and androgen levels. So in terms of other treatments, combined oral contraceptive pills are well known to restore menstrual cycles. Uh, so that is common used uh, in treatment. And if hirsutism is not resolved using the combined oral contraceptive pills alone, the addition of spironolactone can further reduce hair growth and that hirsutism. And of course, metformin is often used for its insulin sensitizing properties 
uh, to improve ovarian insulin resistance and menstrual regulation, but it's less effective, again, in reducing that unwanted hair growth. And studies of metformin in adults with PCOS have assessed combination therapy with insulin sensitizers, and the findings suggest that compared to monotherapy, metformin plus GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy leads to a significant improvement in glycemic status, while metformin plus TZDs can improve menstrual regulation and hyperandrogenism. But, and this wasn't according to the authors, but just uh, remember that TZDs can be associated with weight gain. So just keep that in mind. All right. And lastly, the authors discuss the adolescent athlete with obesity. So, you know, while physical activity is often recommended uh, for all adolescents, for all kiddos, um, and, and especially those with obesity, there's rarely a discussion around injury prevention in adolescents and uh, adolescent athletes with obesity. And adolescent um, athletes with obesity suffer higher rates of both physical injuries than healthy weight adolescents. And in addition to that, the clinician providing care for the adolescent athlete with obesity should address the high frequency of weight-based victimization and bullying, uh, including teasing, humiliation, and feelings of insecurity around appearance that are common um, with athletes. And studies report that adolescents with obesity uh, who are athletes are twice as likely to sustain injuries, in particular, lower extremity injuries compared to adolescents of normal weight. And they also are at a higher risk of exertional heat injury during activity, especially in sports like football. Uh, they may also have reduced conditioning. And so uh, this is important, especially if they present for clearance uh, for sports participation, uh, as they may indicate, you know, the complaint of shortness of breath with exertion. So that's something that should be considered by clinicians who are doing the sports clearance. So the authors state that when treating an adolescent athlete with obesity who is actively working to reduce weight, the clinician should ensure that the youth stays hydrated and that they consume a nutrition plan that meets their nutritional requirements, and that weight loss may not always be the focus during active sport participation when they're quote-unquote in season, but instead the conversion of fat to muscle mass may be more clinically important. And if weight loss is pursued, it should be gradual with the goal of preserving muscle mass. And also just so important to discuss you know, injury prevention in adolescent athletes with obesity. Again, it's extremely important due to, you know, injuries frequently resulting in time away from participation or sometimes even seizing the participation in, in a sport entirely. So it's really important that uh, we're protecting these athletes uh, appropriately from injuries as well and assessing them appropriately. So in conclusion, the authors state that this clinical practice statement should not be interpreted as rules or directives regarding the medical care of an individual patient, but rather the decision regarding the optimal care of the patient with pre-obesity or obesity 
is best reliant upon a patient-centered approach managed by the clinician tasked with directing an individual treatment plan that is in the best interest of the individual patient. So I think that this CPS statement was very well written and really provided some excellent guidance on the management of adolescents with obesity, especially in the special populations mentioned in this statement uh, that can present with some unique challenges um, and therefore some unique treatment recommendations. So I thought this was a really great CPS statement. And again, I will be sure to link it in the show notes. All right. So just one last order of business before we wrap this up. So we are actually changing the frequency of this podcast from a weekly podcast to a monthly podcast. As many of you know, I'm involved with a lot of different medical organizations like PAs and Obesity Medicine, the Illinois Obesity Society, the Obesity Medicine Association, and many others. And then there's my clinical work. And I've been having such a great time with our Gaining Health community members We're doing our regular live virtual group coaching sessions, usually about every other week or twice a month, Uh, and refer to these as meet and greets, Uh, and those have been super fun, and uh, we're constantly working on ways to support our members with additional member benefits, including more masterclasses, bringing in guest speakers, and also offering members discounts to some of our partner organizations. And we currently have discounts for our tier two members with the Obesity Medicine Association, Coach Care, Sika, and Telediets, and we have more discounts in the work. So if you want to learn more about what we're working on at Gaining Health, check out gaininghealth.com and also be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. So everyone, that's all I have for you today. So I will see you all back next month on the Gaining Health Podcast. Thank you for joining us on the Gaining Health Podcast and for your commitment to learning more about how we can care for people with obesity in a compassionate and evidence-based way. If you'd like to learn more about gaining health and how we support clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program, please check us out online at gaininghealth.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with a friend or colleague and leave us a review. And lastly, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, even if it's just $5 a month, we would really appreciate it. And you can do so by clicking on our Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.